are listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's message. I think the irony of this being the fourth week of Advent, the week we celebrate peace, I don't know who made the order up. I don't know who the Advent king was, but I'll tell you what, I think it's ironic because this is probably, at least in the Fowler house, I don't know about the, you know, whatever house, this was not a week of peace, all right? And, And so if you're, I mean, like our family and there was exams and there was Christmas parties with cupcakes and whatever else and there was two in the morning on Snapfish and getting letters out that'll get there by New Year's. Or, you know, there's all that. There's shopping to be done. Some of you are going to get on I-95 and pack up this and that and the other thing, right? There's teacher's gifts. There's the husbands who are fearing the credit card bill when it comes in a few weeks. It's the only piece is I'll, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. That's the piece in the Fowler household, right? Peace will be when everyone's gone and we're, we, we, I can go camping by myself. That's peace. Um, uh, but that's the irony of the whole situation is that the angels say what? Peace on earth. And, and if most of us are honest, I mean, if we're really honest, if I ask the question, anyone have any chaos in their life right now? Anyone have any struggles? Anyone have any, just the grind of life getting to you? Anyone? Here, I got like two hands, two honest, there we go, there's like four of y'all. Okay, the rest of you repent later. When we do the Lord's Supper, you can repent before that, right? Because the reality is, is, is when you say, hey, has anyone got any struggles? Is there any chaos? Yeah, I'm alive, aren't I? Right? So when we hear peace on earth, it's kind of like, really? Really? Peace? I don't know what that is. Peace when I'm dead. Peace. But that's, that's the great thing about the Christmas story, is that if you were going to ask anybody involved in the Christmas story, how's your life right now? Is it a little bit of struggle? You know what? Every one of them, their hands are going to go up. Yeah. We looked at Mary last week, right? And the coming of Messiah did what? Rocked her world, right? We're going to look at some other folks this week, and what we're going to see is everybody's got their hands up. I got struggles. In fact, the coming of Messiah actually makes life more difficult for people initially. The closer you are involved in the story, the more difficult it becomes. The more upside down their life turns. And that is a great thing to hear. Because let's be honest, there's a small segment of our population that gets their Christmas cards to you the first week in December. They are the hated ones. (laughs) They are the despised ones. Right? Because you look at them and they got matching L.L. Bean sweaters and the lab is sitting still and everyone's smiling and everyone looks perfect. Right? And then you look at your deal sitting next to you and like, what is wrong with you? Why do we not like each other? Why does our dog chew up Christmas presents? Their dog gets Christmas presents. Right? They like each other. Look at them smiling. Right? But the reality is that picture that we look at, if we knew the story behind that picture, 
It was a professional photographer. It cost $2,000. That was the 71st take. The 18-year-old was complaining about his sweater that was itchy. The dog ran off after the squirrel. No one really talked to each other in the minivan on the way over. That's what's going on behind the picture, but the smile is here. Merry Christmas from the Smiths. Right? That's what we see. Right? Everything's perfect. But when you strip down the veneer of the scripture and our lives, we just see the reality is nothing's perfect. So how can we have peace on earth? That's the question. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to get honest with the scripture again this morning. And I'm going to show you a couple other just snaps of the, of the Christmas story so that you will be encouraged because you're not alone, church. That's, that's, it's something biblical about knowing everyone else is miserable, to be honest with you. Because Peter says this, that the same experiences of your suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And he's trying to encourage the church when he says, look, everyone else is going through the same stuff. They don't want to admit it, but they are. That's a great place to be. So we can go back to the early, early story and say, look, it's happened to Joseph, it's happened to Mary, it's happened to the shepherds, it's happened to Magi, it happened to Anna and Simeon and all these people. And it's meant to be an encouragement to you that you are not alone. Everyone's got their hand up. And then we'll, so we're going to look at those, and then we'll talk about what really the peace offered here at Christmas is at the end. So let's start in Matthew. First gospel, Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can just open the, there's a table of contents in the Bible in the front of you, in the, in the seat in front of you. Just find Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. We're going to just be there for a little bit, right? Now understand this. The gospel of Matthew, written by Matthew, who was a tax collector, a follower of Jesus, was written to a Jewish audience. I mean, obviously, it's for all of us to read. But the, the people in mind when Matthew is writing are Jewish people. It's, it's a very, it's got a Jewish flair to it. He's, gonna, he's not going to go into all the customs. and He's going to assume that the people reading it know the customs. And so under, understanding that is helpful as we, as we go through just portions of his, of his gospel here. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. All right, remember, the term Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. So the idea is the birth of Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah. Christos is just the the Greek word that means the Messiah. So the, the Jewish people read that. The birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. Now, immediately in their mind, a first century Jew, when they read that, they got all sorts of images. They are thinking... This is going to be a 25-pound baby. He's going to come out with hair on his chest and ready to slay Rome. This is their deliverer. This is their promised one, right? The Rocky theme is going off of the... Dun, 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 dun. I mean, that's what they're thinking when they read the birth of the Messiah, the one who break the, the, the yoke of Rome and deliver us into the kingdom. It will be like this. But Matthew says this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they would have said, who? Mary and Joseph? Don't, don't know them. Are they, they, they famous? They, they royalty? They, no. They're nobodies from nowhere. Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No. That, that's the idea. Before, excuse me, before they came together, she, Mary, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were here last week or you know the, the Luke narrative, you'll remember that Mary was just living life, getting ready to get married, Gabriel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be the son of God. He is going to be the Messiah. She says, okay. And she leaves Nazareth. Remember, she leaves Nazareth for three months. She gets out of Dodge and goes and sees her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. She stays there until John the Baptist is born. And then she comes back 
to Nazareth. And that is probably when it says she was found. The Greek word there is in the passive voice, which means she didn't announce it on Facebook. I'm pregnant. Woo! It wasn't that. It was Mary. Did you eat a lot of pasta with Elizabeth? Why are you wearing those pregnancy stretchy pants now? I mean, that's what it is. She shows up three months later and she's pregnant and she was found to be pregnant. All right? She didn't go announcing it. She was found. She was discovered. And everybody in Nazareth would have been talking because Nazareth, Nazareth is a, a little hill country town, not a lot of people there, and it would have been scandal. And everyone hears, you hear about Mary? Do you hear about Mary? Do you hear about Mary? And eventually, guess who finds out? Good old Joseph. And it doesn't tell us how that conversation went down, but I can only imagine. Right? He's standing there, Mary. What have you done? You betrayed me. You've, we were to be married. No, Joseph, Joseph, I, I'm innocent. The angel came and told me, and I, the child is the son of God. So you're going to add blasphemy to adultery now, Mary? Two things he would have never thought she was capable of. But yet at the same time, there's got, there's got to be something in Joseph as he looks at this. She's, she seems innocent. She's, she seems Sane. She doesn't seem like a wacko, but she's talking like a wacko. But she seems convinced and she seems pure as ever. But it, but it can't be. And so Joseph, he's got some options now. He's got some decisions to make. And in and, and verse 19, he, he, it says what his decision is. He and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He's got options. Number one option is he can marry her. Not a good one for him because he's marrying an adulterer. He's marrying someone who's guilty. That's not an option, really. That is an option, but it's not an option. Another option is to make a huge spectacle, embarrass the fool out of her, and make sure he, everyone knows he's innocent and she's guilty. Kind of a public trial, put her on display. She wears the, the scarlet letter for the rest of her life. That's an option. And then there's a third option. She can, he can just do it kind of quietly can break off the engagement, which in those days required a, a legal divorce because it was a legal contract. So he could quietly do it, hush, hush, right? Not, not going and getting, you know, some big lawyer, just kind of quietly. And we'll just protect her because he's a good man because he, he, he cares about her. He loves her. He's brokenhearted, but he doesn't want to shame her. So being a just man, he doesn't want to put her to shame. And, that, and that's where he goes. He's resolved, and the tense of the verb is, he's, this is what he's going to do. He's decided. He's made up his mind. Even after verse 20 says, and he considered these things, and, and the idea behind the verse there is that it was some time. He considered it. He thought about it. And you can imagine, he's getting all sorts of advice. His parents are probably like, you will not bring that lady into our family. No. And his buddies are probably like, dude, you can't do that, brah. <laughs> she, 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 she betrayed you. She lied to you. Dude, we can't be friends. If, if you marry her, you got to choose. Right? But look, look, remember the little, the little Joni down the road? She's single. She's being a good wife for you. Why don't you go after her? All sorts of advice. But what I love is this. God has not yet stepped in, has he? He hasn't said anything to Joseph. He's letting Joseph face this hard difficult situation. This is a, a huge decision, a painful decision, and God has not showed up and rescued it from him, rescued him from it. He's letting him wrestle. 
And he's got open doors. We always pray, Lord, open the door. He's got three open doors. Marry her, make it a public spectacle, do it quietly. Open doors galore, and God has given him no direction whatsoever. And it's not because he's being disobedient or he's a bad dude or he's not listening. It's not praying. He just hasn't showed up yet. God allows him to just wrestle. And God even allows him to make the wrong decision. Think about it. He lets him decide, I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm gonna, he lets him make up his mind and go in that direction, right, to divorce her. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you just had no clue what God wanted you to do? I mean, really, what, what am I supposed to do? I mean, in just a hard, hard decision, should I put my mom in a nursing home? Should I do this? What, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do with this, this teenager who is just acting like this? Should we take the job in Cleveland? Should I take the job in Panama City? That's an easy one. <laughs> right? Ever been in that place where it's a lose-lose? It's like, if I choose this, this happens. If I choose this, this happens. I don't know what to do. God, why don't you show me what to do? You're not alone. Joseph's there. He's got his hand up. Struggles. Difficulty. Hard decisions. And God even lets him make a bad decision. Right? Have you ever been there? Made a decision, you're like, oh, why do we do that? Why do we buy that car? Why do we choose that? Why do... but, the be... <clears throat> but the beauty of God is, even when that happens, he's there to steer and to guide and to correct. I remember when we were in seminary, we moved to Dallas, Texas, knowing no one, knowing no, nothing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I had to get into a church quick. That's where I was going to make my money. That's where we were going to support the family. To be an intern in a church and the ministry we were working with was going to pay us for that. And so we joined a church after praying. We went to a bunch of churches. We wanted to be close to our house. We joined a church. It's a good church. God was preaching the gospel, preaching the word. It was a growing church. It was an exciting church. It was similar to where we were theologically. We joined it, and I was actually going to teach the following Sunday. I had joined a ministry team. I was teaching the college class. I was going to be one of the leaders. For the next three years, I was going to do that while I'm in seminary. I was teaching the following Sunday, all right? And it's Monday morning, and I'm in the middle of seminary class, and I strongly feel the Spirit just saying, you shouldn't be a member of this church. Not, it wasn't an apostate church. It wasn't a bad church. It was a good church. It just was not where God wanted us. I'm thinking, well, why didn't you tell us that Wednesday when we joined the church? I mean, I'm thinking, Lord, now I got to go to this guy who I, not begged, but I volunteered. I'm going to serve. I'm going to be here for three years. I'll be, and now I got to go and tell him I'm not going to be a part of his church. That's a, that was a hard place. But I went into his office. I said, hey, this is not, y'all, this is, this is what God's doing. I made a mistake. And we ended up joining this other little church, which was clearly where God was leading us, even though we would have never seen it. But see, that's the beauty of the Christian walk. Sometimes God doesn't just swoop in and rescue you from all these things. He wants you to wrestle with it. Why? So that you'll trust him. So that even when you make that mistake, he can come along and correct. When you make a mistake as a parent, you come along, and that's what he does. And he has purpose even in those. And so he lets Joseph wrestle and struggle, and then... He gives him his answer, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But we don't know if it's Gabriel, maybe it was Gabriel, maybe it was another angel. But what the angel tells Joseph is the exact same thing that he told Mary, which is probably what Mary told Joseph, which this is a great lesson for Joseph. This is premarital counseling 101. Listen to your wife. Okay, that's good. Just do what your wife says and you'll be happy. And sure enough, yeah, right? Right? But that, that, that's what the angel does. And sure enough, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but he knew her not until she had given birth to his son. And he called his name Jesus. He obeys, even though it cost him. What does it cost him? It cost him a honeymoon, right? It cost him a honeymoon because he does not know her. He doesn't consummate the marriage until after the Lord Jesus is born. But that's just a little sacrifice for him. The big sacrifice is now he is taking this, what everyone calls an adulterer, and he's taking this adulterer as his bride, which everyone's gonna now say, yeah, Joseph, now we know why you sent her away. Mmm, yeah. Now we get it. Right? What is his reputation going to be now in that little town of Nazareth? It's going to be, oh, you're a sinner like she is. You think you're going to want to go to Joseph's carpenter shop? You're going to want him to build your table? You're going to want him to do that? He, oh, he's a lawbreaker. He's an adulterer. And he's innocent. Joseph's got his hand up. Waving, right? Struggles, chaos, has the Messiah coming to his life immediately made it better? Is there peace? Is he, he's not singing, peace on earth and mercy. He's not singing that right now, right? He's not, but that's okay, right? We saw Mary last week, and we looked at her in Luke 1. Let's, let's look at both Mary and Joseph together. Now that they're together and they're married, let, let's look at their lives and see how much better or worse it's gotten initially. Turn to Luke chapter 2 real quick. A few books over, Luke chapter 2. Let me read just verses 1 through 5. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. And right here, again, remember, a Jewish gospel, he's highlighting the fact that there's royal DNA in this family. They don't look like it, but both Mary and Joseph are both from the lineage of David. So there is a legal precedence for this baby to be king, even though he doesn't look like a king, but he's got the bloodline. So they're registered in Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed was with child. And so they take the trek from Nazareth, which is in the north, to Bethlehem, which is in the south, about 80 miles south. And it says, notice in verse 4, that they went up to Bethlehem, right? Why are they going up to Bethlehem, even though they're going south? Because they're going uphill. Because Bethlehem and then Jerusalem are both in the hills, and they've been down in the valley. So they're actually going on a trip that's 80 miles at about 3,000 feet elevation. They are going uphill. And look... You ladies, some of you have had babies. You are in a minivan at eight months pregnant. It's not fun, all right? Try walking, and we don't know if she had a donkey. I mean, hopefully Joseph sprung for one, but maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't have enough money. Either way, an 80-mile journey, nine months pregnant, in, on a rocky hill, riding uphill, right? You ask her 
how that trip was and when you get to heaven and see what she says, right? She's going to give you that look like, what are you talking about, Willis? I mean, that's what she's going to say. Because that was not an easy trip, right? And they get to Bethlehem, which is the city of David, the city he is from, because that's where their family's from and that's where the taxes are going to be paid. And, and when you think of Bethlehem, don't think of New York City, all right? We have the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, because it was a little town. Estimates between 300 and 1,000 people lived in the area. All right? It is a little town. In fact, the prophet who prophesied the Messiah would be born there, Micah, says this about Bethlehem. When, oh, is that it? That's not it. And we go. Well, there it is. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. When Micah prophesies Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, this is what he says. You're such a little town, you can't even be considered a town in Judah. You're nothing. You're just a little, you know, like a flashing light and a, and a dollar general on the way to Jerusalem. That's what you are. You're just small. And so when this town has thousands of people coming back to it, think Bass Pro on Christmas Eve. That's what you need to think. It's chaos. It is just packed. Everybody is here. And so when you get to verse 6, and while they were here, the time came for her to, be, to give birth, and she gave birth to the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And we've heard many a sermon on, on the wicked, mean innkeeper who doesn't have room for Jesus. He hates babies. He hates Jesus. He hates everything. He's the mean innkeeper right? You've heard that sermon. So, so don't be like the innkeeper this Christmas. You need to welcome baby Jesus into your heart. That is one of the worst putting your culture on their culture example there is. All right. I had actually a, a hotel guy come up to me after first service and say, thank you for acknowledging the innkeeper is not all wicked, right? <laughs> because this guy is not a bad dude. Understand the little town of Bethlehem probably had at best one inn. All right? And it's just not, you know, Motel 6 over there, and then there's the Holiday Inn Express over there, and then there's the Marriott. One inn in this little town, probably. And an inn was not what you think of as an inn. It's not some hotel management degree that you go off and you... This is... An inn then would have been one room, just a, a medium size, maybe even a small room, where if you go to the inn, you get to go sleep in the corner over there, or maybe you get to go over there and get your you know, bed roll out. It's a bunch of people in a room. And it's full, not because the innkeeper doesn't like baby Jesus. It's full because there's thousands of people in town. And so there's, this room is packed. There's no room. And even if there was room, do you want to give birth with 80 people in the room with you? Do they want you giving birth with them? I mean, <laughs> lady, will you get the epidural? Please, we're trying to sleep over here. I mean, okay, it's not a good situation. So don't slam the innkeeper for not having room. Yell at Caesar. He's the one that made him go, right? But that's the idea. But picture the desperation of the moment. I mean, just imagine. Some of you men who have driven your wives while they are in labor to the hospital, you get this a little bit. I made a mistake with one of our kids. We're driving to the hospital, and I said, it's okay, honey. You don't, you know, Hush. Why don't they they'll tell me that? You know, she's, she's in the middle of a contraction and I'm just like, I'm trying to drive here. Will you just, you know, <laughs> the bad mistake, right? 
Okay? Don't do that. But can you imagine how desperate the situation? Mary's outside, maybe on a donkey, maybe not. Do you have any room, sir? My wife is giving birth. She's in labor right now. Joseph, hurry. Sir, do you have any room? No, look. It's packed. There's there's no room. You don't know any friends. You don't know anybody. I even have people in my own room. There's no room, sir. I am so sorry. And I don't know how it played out. My gut tells me there was a woman somewhere that came up and said, honey, honey. We have the stable. No, no, honey, you can't give her. It's a baby. She's pregnant. She's having a baby. You can't have a baby in the stable. Would you rather her have it in the alley? There's a stable, right? (laughs) Out back. And we assume it was some kind of a stable. We don't even know. All we know is there was a manger, which means there was, it's an animal feeding trough. Tradition actually says it was a cave. In fact, you go to Bethlehem today and there's, you know, there was a temple, I mean, a uh, a church built on it on the fourth century. Constantine's mama in the fourth century, every holy site in Israel, she built basically a church on top of it. So she's got churches all over of Israel, and this is one of the spots that they they build a temple or a a church on, and you can go down and see where the cave may or may not have really been. We We can't be sure. But either way, she gives birth in some place where there's animals eating. And just, again, picture the desperation. And, and don't picture a nice, clean place. Oh, isn't it sweet? There's the cattle lowing. I don't even know what that means. The cattle are lowing. But the, the, don't picture clean, nice. Isn't it so great? Everyone should be born in, in, a, in a manger. <laughs> the closest equivalent, and, and it's not even that close, but the closest equivalent you may have is being born in a garage. And I'm not talking about the 2% of y'all that have like, oh, my garage is nice. I got carpet and TV. No, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about most of us whose garage is just where you throw stuff and there's cockroaches and it's cold and it's dark and it's damp and the car never goes in it. That's the garage I'm talking about. That's the idea. Don't picture, oh, a nice little campfire. You're going to light a campfire with straw everywhere and the thing's going to go up. Picture a dark, damp lonely, my mother's not there to help me with the birth, my, my, my mother-in-law's not with me to help me, there's no midwives, all there are are cattle lowing and a carpenter who's probably 20 years old and never delivered a baby in his life sitting there delivering the Messiah. And the only thing you can do just to get a break is to put the, the baby in a moderately crib-like thing. That is where the Son of God comes. Can you picture the desperation of that situation a little bit? And how just the grind of that would be? Have you ever been in a place in your life, if you're honest, that you just, you're at your wits and the whole family, the kids, everyone's throwing up. What do I do? I don't know what to do. We're $250 short this month on our bills. No money in savings. What are we going to do? The boss is coming tomorrow. The project is only halfway done. What are we going to do? Our marriage is so broken. I don't even want to be at home because, because all we do is fight. We can't even have dinner together with the kids because all we do is yell. You ever been at wit's end? You're just desperate. You're just crying out, Lord, what are we supposed to do? That's the situation. Right? And, and understand again, 
They are smack dab in the middle of God's will. This is exactly where he wants him. This is exactly where they're supposed to be. You say, how can that be? Can God not even give his, his child a nice clean bed for one night? See, this is, the, this is the thing that Joseph and Mary, they probably didn't get it then and that we need to get is that this is really not about Mary and Joseph. This is about the Son of God glorifying himself by emptying himself, becoming a man in ultimate humility. If you ask Joseph and Mary at that point, would, would you have rather been somewhere else or was that good? No, no, we loved it there. No, they would have said, no, no, please. Anything but that again. That was hard. That was hard. But when they stepped back, probably, and they understood later, they got to see, oh, that was the point. Look, in, in times of desperation of our life, the, the reaction most of the time is to try to get out of it, get out of it, find a way out, find a way out. And that's not necessarily bad. But in those times, maybe, just maybe God is trying to teach us not just to get out of something, but also to trust him more. Could it be? Because what you need to understand that stables of desperation in our lives, when we step back and get out of them, they become the birthplaces of grace. We don't see it when we're in the middle of it, but once you get away from it, you can see, oh, this is what God was doing. It's not always clear when you're in it, but when you can get back a little bit, oh, this, this is what God is doing. This, this is what's God's grace. This is how he shaped me. This is how he made me better more like his son. And boy, is it, when you're in the middle of that, that is a hard deal to get. But when you get away from it, oh, I see now. I read this week about a pastor named Samuel Lamb. Maybe some of you are familiar with who he was. He passed away in, in this past August, 88 years old, was one of the key leaders in the house church movement in China. And this guy, this dude, I mean, Talk about just struggles. Spent 20 plus years in prisons and, and, work, and just work factories that they would arrest him. He actually was arrested so many times, he just kept a bag by his door with his toothbrush and like a, pair, a change of clothes. So when they would come to take him, he'd just take his bag and go to jail. He just was so familiar with it, right? But they stopped arresting him after a certain point because what they realized is every time they put this guy in prison, the church exploded. It would just grow. The persecution of this pastor actually made the church grow more and more and more. And he recognized this in his life. And, and that's the perspective we have to get in the middle of chaos. You know what? It's a struggle. But what is God doing big picture? A stable of desperation becomes the birthplace of grace. Right? And I'll tell you, when Samuel Lamb, in August of this past year, entered into the presence and the joy of his master. Every beating he suffered, every day in the coal mines, every cold night in prison, every lashing, every hunger, it was worth it. It was worth it, right? It's hard, but that's the peace that Christ wants us to have. So Mary and Joseph were both saying, yeah, we got our hands up, woo! We got struggles, we got issues. Let's look at the next group here, because there's another group in this, in this narrative that we know and we're familiar with, but sometimes we miss. Verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, shepherds in those days were kind of the rejects, okay? They, they weren't 
like wicked, evil dudes, but they were kind of like, they couldn't, they couldn't testify in court because they were never there. They're never in the temple. They were never obeying the law. So they weren't considered a legal, a legal uh, reliability. So, you know, they're kind of out there. And not only that, they had the reputation of being a little bit shady because what happened is they'd bring their hundred sheep close to your sheep and you got 50 and they got 100 and they'd hang out for a couple of days and then they leave and they have 112 and you have 88 or whatever. You'd go down 12 and they'd be like, oh, I don't know how it happened, right? So they had a little shady reputation. But here is in the same region outside of Bethlehem, there's shepherds. And by the way, the shepherds that were outside of Bethlehem were, were shepherding, history tells us, the Passover lambs. These were the lambs that would actually be offered in Jerusalem during the Passover. Very fitting that the Passover lambs were outside the city of Bethlehem where the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world would be. But there they are, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Now we read that, and we're like, oh, isn't that cute? Linus read it in the Charlie Brown Christmas. And you miss, this is one of the most phenomenal events in all of the scripture. This is one of the top 10 TiVo events, right? When you get to heaven, you're like, Okay, I want to see the. I want to see this. I want to see David and Goliath. I want to see the fire from heaven. I want to see the angels, right? Because we have this false little view of it. When the glory of the Lord, it's not just a flashlight. It's the fire and glory and brightness of heaven, and this angel that shows up. See, this is what we get. This is you Google image, shepherds watching flock angel. You get stuff like this. That is not what's going on. I mean, all those shepherds would be like, I got her, I'll take her out. And they tackle her. That's what they do. That, that is not scary. That is a girly licking somebody. That doesn't strike fear into anybody. All right? But that's the image we have, right? This is not some, you know, girly looking dude. This is a warrior from heaven. Battle array. Sword in hand, flaming sword. The angels are not just like these choir guys singing harps. That's not angels. Angels are warriors. They are soldiers. They are fighting a heavenly battle. This is probably more accurate, although not biblical. This is probably more accurate. All right? In fact, I like this guy more. Something out of the Lord of the Rings is more appropriate. All right? Okay, because that is scary. This makes me cry. That is scary. But either way, this guy shows up and scares them to death. And he says to them, fear not, right? Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And next, notice what happens next. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. All right? A multitude, we don't know how many, hundreds, thousands, millions. These are the word hosts there is the Greek word that means armies. This is the armies of heaven showing up bright with their swords and shields and fieriness. It's not a choir. They're not holding their songbooks. Everybody ready? We're in the key of G. Angels. That's not what's going on. These are angels in battle array announcing the coming of the God-man. It is an unbelievable event. Right? 
don't miss that. Don't put the, the little, you know, non-scary guy there, right? Because that's not what's going on. They show up. They announce to the shepherds and they praise God. Glory to God. And what? The most scary army ever to walk the earth offers what? Peace. Glory to God and peace. That's the irony of the whole situation. They're offering peace among those with whom God is pleased. And now you have these shepherds who are faced with a huge decision. What are we going to do about this announcement? These angels are waiting for us to make a call, right? But what are we going to do? Do we leave our sheep? They're probably one, two miles outside of town. Do we leave our sheep, our livelihood, which they probably don't own? Probably there's a man, they're managing someone else's sheep. Do we leave our livelihood here in the middle of nowhere and go back there and see this baby? There's a reason sheep need shepherds. It's not because we always say, oh, sheep are dumb. They're not the smartest. They're not border collies. But it's not as much that they're dumb. It's just there's, they're helpless. They don't have like a stinger on the back that they can, oh, I got you now. They don't have acid shooting out of their eyes. They have nothing. Unless you have a wool allergy, you're pretty safe around a sheep, okay? <laughs> There's not a danger factor going on. They're, they're desperately just helpless. And so if they leave, there's a potential that they lose their entire livelihood. So what do they do? You know what they do. They go. They make a choice. But the choice requires them to think, and their hands are up just like everyone else. Hey, I had to make a hard choice. Hey, I had to make a decision. Hey, this was not easy. And you could go to the Magi who made a hard choice to leave their home for well over a year to come see this Messiah and the separation and the inconvenience. And you can go through the line. Every single person that is involved in the Christmas story, their hands are up. And the coming of Messiah has forced them to make hard decisions. It's made their life difficult in the, in the immediate time. But that is the beauty, y'all. This is why we do expositional preaching. This is why we try to, to get you to understand how just raw and authentic, and I know those are, there's kind of buzzwords in the church, but that's the nature of the, of the scriptures. It is real. It is living. It is active. It's not just some ancient book. It's something that's relevant and just to show you and strip away the veneer of the, the pretty sweaters in the lab sitting there and show you this is what it's like. This is the beauty of Scripture. Even the stepdad and mom of the Messiah have struggles and issues and are facing anything but peace on earth. That, that's the reality. And all of them are right smack dab in the middle of God's will. And so, church, be encouraged this morning. If you're, some of you are struggling with some, just some deep, Depression. Some of you are scared of what's next, and some of you have just chronic health, and some of you are just worried about this, and, and there's all sorts of stuff. And some of you, you and your spouse have been fighting more now than you ever have in your lives, and you just don't know what's going on. Some of you are wrestling with where do I go to college next year? How do I pay for next semester? I mean, you got all, these are all, and what you need to know is it's okay. You are not alone. The same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And we are certainly not alone because Christ knows. So the question is this, then how can these guys say peace on earth after they just scared these boys to death? How can there really be peace on earth? What is he really offering? What is he really saying here? Just real quick, go back to verse 10. 
We'll look. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Literally, I bring you gospel, and it's gospel of a great joy. It's not just good news the market's up. It's not just good news your mother's coming into town. It's not just good news your team won. It is of great joy that is for all the people. This is for everyone. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And I love the personalness of it. It's unto you. I got it circled in my Bible. Unto you is born. Not unto us angels. We don't need a Savior. Okay, this, is, this Savior is not for the angels. It is for people, for all of us. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Messiah, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is a Savior, right? And it's not like the saviors that he sent in the past. In the Old Testament, God sent a lot of saviors. He sent David. He sent Moses. He sent Samuel. He sent Samson. He sent Gideon. He sent all these saviors. This savior is Messiah. He is the Lord, right? He is unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulder, and his name will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's who this savior is, you, why a savior? Because that is what we needed the most, a savior. Our biggest need was not to end poverty or a budget deal or a spending deal. If it was, then he would have sent an economist. If we were short on ideas, he would have sent us a philosopher. If we were bored, he would have sent us an entertainer. If we were disorganized, he would have sent an administrator. If we're sick, if it was our greatest need, he would have sent a doctor. He sends a savior because we are lost and perishing without him. That's what he sends. And at the announcement that God becomes man, the angels say what? Glory to God. And it's not their singing. And we sing angels we have heard on high. It never says actually that the angels sang. They say it was probably a battle cry. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men. He offers peace. Peace. On those, I love the phrase, on whom he is pleased. That God is pleased to save man. That God delights to press salvation into their hands. That God, is, that God is pleased with people so much that he sends his son. Because we were separated from him by our, de- by our sin. We were, there was enmity between us and God. And so he sends his son. Not merely to just add extra to our life but to be a substitute and pay the debt of our sin so we may have peace with God. He's not conceived in Mary's womb for those who try their hardest, who, who memorize the this and go to church and do all these things. He is conceived for those who know that their best are filthy rags. He is not sent just to be a, a source of great experience, but to suffer the pangs of hell, as one preacher called it, so that he might be our savior. What you have to understand here is the ultimate one whose hand is up It's not just Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the magi. There's a little hand that's raised. At this point, that little hand becomes a big hand who is nailed to the wooden cross that he created. The hand of Christ is going to go up and say, yep, I came into the world for struggles. I've been through every single thing you've been through. We have a high priest, the writer to Hebrews says, who can sympathize with us, not just some pie in the sky, but one who has been tempted in all ways yet without sin. Everything that you have faced, everything you are facing, every struggle, every hardship, every temptation, Jesus faced it. He knows it. 
He knows what it's like to be rejected by his parents for being innocent. He knows what it's like for his brothers and sisters to not like him. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by his best friends. He knows what it's like for his very father in heaven to turn his back on him and pour out his wrath on him. He knows what it's like to have chaos. And he does it because he loves you and so that you can have eternal life. He's walked it. He's felt it. He's experienced it. And now he doesn't promise peace from all the junk, but he promises his peace in it because he walked in it. And he says, I will be with you always, even in that, even in that, even in that, even to the end of the age. And I will walk you with it. Let me close by reading uh, this letter. Two weeks ago, one of our brothers was killed in Libya, pastor from a church in Texas called Austin Stone. And he was teaching chemistry at a school there. It was his, he was a missionary there. Him and his family moved there. They felt God's call there. I told you about it a couple weeks ago. His wife this week wrote a letter to the people of Libya and to his murderers. And she put it out there and, and she wanted them to hear uh, what she had to say about them giving their lives ultimately for the people of Libya or her giving her husband. This is what she writes, and she specifically, this portion of, you can read the whole thing online, you can Google it. Then we just read the part that she says to his attackers. She says this, to his attackers, I love you and I forgive you. How could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge. Jesus sacrificed his life out of love for the very people who killed him, as well as for us today. His death and resurrection opened the door for us to walk on the straight path to God in peace and in forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did, Ronnie is with Jesus in paradise now. Jesus did not only come to take us to paradise when we die, but also to bring peace and healing on the earth. Ronnie loved you because God loves you. Ronnie loved you because God loved him. Not because Ronnie was so great, but because God is so great. See, she's got peace. How can she have peace? She's got a young child at home. She just lost her husband to the very people that they, they went to help. How can she have peace? Because Christ has given her peace. And she offers it to the very murderers of her husband. And that's what Jesus does. He offers peace to the people who put him on the cross, you and I. 